record. One, two, three, four, five, five, <laughs> Jesus, six, Pete. seven, set, <laughs> eight, <laughs> nine, ten. Ten. That'll do. Well, uh, that's probably done more harm than good, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Well, first things first. I I'm wearing the big old, the big old headphones that David gave me in his slight irritation during the Tour de France last year. Just just wear some good headphones, will you? <laughs> like I'm wearing these noise cancelling headphones, which has slightly irritated me because I wanted to wear. Oh, I what a lovely hat! My, I wanted to wear my hat that I got in Portugal oh. that I wear every day in Lewisham. David, you'd love it. I know I've got a hat you'd just like it. that. I love it. You had a well. It's my it's my. My trilby, my my felt yeah. trilby from Portugal, um, that that was given to me incredibly kindly by Luke Lamperty. Aww. It was his when he won the first stage. He just said, "Keep the hat." No, he didn't. That's yeah, amazing. It, by the way, congratulations on that, Pete. I listened back to the podcast and obviously was following everything. That was amazing. You must be very proud. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, so proud. It was uh, proud of the pod as well, actually, Ned. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. it's like it'll always be there. And you know, if you did that without the podcast and we hadn't recorded any of it, it'd just be a memory now. But it's actually yeah. one of it's it's actually the only podcast that we've done that I've listened to from start to finish. Yeah, on the yeah. drive home. Yeah, so. no, it's really it's really nice. It went down really well, didn't it? People really got an insight. And how amazing is it that I just happened to be there the day you got the win? Like, yeah, that was um, that's brilliant. That was so cool. And 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 just to hit, listen back, and your excitement was so genuine. It was fantastic. Also, Look. also, Ned, your excitement was so genuine. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I loved but it. You're like childlike enthusiasm, <laughs> like you're on a bike race for the first time. But I was, David. I mean, I was on a bike race. I, w I was literally on a bike race for the first time, if you think yeah, about I it. Because my only experience has been like sitting in a chair watching it on the telly. That's all I've ever known, really, apart from crit racing and things like that. But um, yeah, I felt like I that day the stars aligned, amazing. didn't they? Everything from totally. start to finish, even the start area was real relax it was everyone was just yeah. buying coffees and it didn't feel like the pressure of and you know when it just happens yeah and you just glide yeah. through the day a bit it was brilliant yeah it was such a good and the next day was just as good it was different but just as good i loved it absolutely oh, loved yeah, it. Yeah. yeah what were your yeah. biggest take what, what, I was just gonna, what were your biggest takeaways ned now that you've had a little bit more kind of time well, one is, as I, as I think I've expressed both in the podcast and on social media subsequently, I mean, p chapeau, Pete, because like, uh, you know, I know that I've always known that there are different sides to you because, well, we make a constant joke about it, don't mm. we? That, that there's, you know, multiple facets semi -joke. of Kenyuk. Semi-joke, semi, we mean yeah. it. Um, but DS Pete had been hitherto invisible to yeah. me. I definitely knew Ryder Pete from interviewing you back in the day and i knew how kind of occasionally abrasive and and uh, uh, you could be you know because you were in your bubble you were in your zone and all that sort of thing but dsp step up uh, a really amazing human being i thought it was great and honestly david you well you know that job especially and, and i don't mean this disrespectfully i mean it the opposite of disrespectfully i mean it respectfully at the level at which um, you're operating at trinity that level where you're doing so much more than the delegated role of a DS at a World Tour team, um, that job is <laughs> it's so complicated. Yeah, and uh, that's that was my takeaway. And Pete, David, Pete was just when he needed to be, he just flipped a switch and then just became this absolutely calm, 
presence. Mm. Um, and, and not just sort of calm in a moment. So I'll shut up in a second, but I'm, I'm still kind of reliving it now. But not just calm in those moments of intense pressure when he needed to be. But also, Pete, when you were doing your, like, your, your little team talk before the stage, the way you managed all that in just a really super low-key way, just gently stripping out all the complication that was building up in the riders' heads when they were hypothesizing about this, that, and the other. But what if we do this and what if they do that? And the way you just kind of, without putting them in their box or taking anything away from their contribution, you just ra- rolled it back a little bit and said, actually, when you think about it, all we kind of need to really think about is this you know, and, and made a very, and made a very clear, very followable, sort of very concise point that was actually probably all they needed to know because everything else happens on the road, doesn't it? I thought it was just honestly, I was so impressed. Thanks, Thank you very much. It was brilliant. You should, uh, David. You should come experience yeah. it at some point with Pete. I'd love to get well, you. I, I kind of well, also right? just with the the pod I got to. That's why it was so good. That's true because I did get to you experience to. it, and it was because um, I, I mean I know oh, well, how hard that job is. Yeah, no, no, I'd love to. It's because I do have so much respect for that job. It's something that I, I would not be able to do. I just wouldn't be able to kind of have that patience and, and, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. Chapeau, Pete. It's very cool. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. So, Pete, what happened? What happened in the rest of the race, Pete? Because I left you after two stages of four. Um, I think the next day was going to be like the Queen stage with the climb oh, at the end. This is so good. Go on, what happened the next day? Because then we were behind... Oh, what? No, it wasn't the next day. It was the day after. We were, Anyway, we were car two behind Burgos for the Queen's okay. stage. And there was the, the main climb of the whole <laughs> Burgos, race, basically. Because yeah. they're only... The enemies. <laughs> bloody, <laughs> bloody Burgos. <laughs> As it, for anyone who doesn't know, who listens to the pod, that we'd been watching Max and Paddy's Road to Nowhere. So the accent is, came from there. <laughs> I'm Max and um, Aaron's Paddy, the mechanic in the Very back. Good. So. Yeah. Uh, what happened next? Who, yeah, so it was, who, you know, it, undulating roads. There wasn't much to go on, was there? It was low gradients and yeah, the, the climbs, they, you know, a lot of sprinters could get over them. But there was just one day where, you know, it was going to happen. And it, on one precise moment where it was around 12% for almost a kilometer. So okay. we just planned basically, a not a team attack, but to hit the front of the bottom of that climb and just try and rip the race to pieces. And I was sat car two behind Burgos because they'd taken over the lead with Cyril Bot the day before. Yeah. Yep. And I was just like, the whole day I knew exactly what was going to happen. And it was at like 84 kilometers into the race and I was just waiting for it, waiting for it. i just seen the team hit the front of the bottom of the climb. And I was like, right, because you just, you got to wait and see then, don't you? Like no radio is nothing. <laughs> and it, the race just split to bits. And anyway, it turned out we got to towards the top of the climb and the yellow jersey was in the second group on the road and we had ollie max finn in the lead group of 16 <laughs> so and and it was like they had like 40 seconds and it was a minute obviously you can go up after a minute and a half and i was just waiting to just pass the virgos car so, <laughs> see ya <laughs> <laughs> thanks for the help <laughs> yeah and the, yeah thanks for the help uh, in the end the guys and quite hard they just missed the main move there was like four guys got away it was i mean it was just a it was a savage day with 30 kilometers to go the the group was just they were attacking each other there was no real cohesion because the the main group of the yellow jersey had finally sort of sat up and gave up hopes and it was just a case of 
that group of 16, the winner was going to come from them. And uh, yeah, the four, four riders got away. I can't remember who now, but still, all in all, epic, epic ride from the guys. And just the way they committed to the tactics throughout the race was incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They learned they as a group they must have learned so much over that week of ra- that you know half a week of racing Pete like from you know from going through the, the the actual experience of being on the winning team and setting setting the win up and then backing it up the following day by actually riding for the yellow jersey and sitting on the front they were so funny weren't they the way they they drop back to the car and go it's kind of you could tell they were buzzing from it and they were kind of like amazed how easy it was we just we're totally in control we're just doing this you know like <laughs> and then one of them I can't remember who it was came back and said. It's a bit boring. It's a bit lonely up there. Oh yeah, just Ollie. Like, I think yeah. it was Ollie. Yeah. yeah, yeah, all day just following the same wheel. I haven't spoke to him, and I was like, I think I felt for eight years on <laughs> Team Sky. But <laughs> 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 yeah. like Callum, so- Callum Thornley, the Scottish rider, he's second year under twenty three. He hasn't raced outside of England. Wow. You yeah. know, so for him it was a massive learning curve, but he learned very, very quickly, and he was, yeah, couldn't have asked any more of him really. Because that, D- David, that must be a definable moment in a young rider's career when, for the first time ever, th- they're on the team of the yellow jersey and they are on the front and they are doing that thing that, as kids, they've all grown up watching kind of day after day after day on the telly. Mm. And you suddenly find yourself in exactly that position. Can you remember the first time it happened It happened to you? Like, yeah, I try- in any kind of a race? I think in, I think, like Pete said, the biggest one is doing it abroad. Because often when you're that good, you kind of you're doing it in the UK, and it's but it's very different because it's kind of almost random racing, and you yeah even with the the kind of status of UK racing now and UK racers and Team Ineos etc. The history of Sky, you still feel you've got to go to the continent to do it, and often you go to the continent and it's it's so much harder, and you're kind of suddenly it feels like you're going from amateur to pros, even though you're at a kind of lower pro race. Kind of, it's just a, it's a huge leap. So I think once it doesn't really happen until you're in this, in, and I think that's why Trinity Race, that's why Pete, you guys are going to races like that because it gives them that opportunity to to feel like they're in a real bike race, kind of. And all of a sudden, the first time you do it in a continental race, you're like, oh, this is possible. I could do this. And I think that's that's often the sensation you get when you do it on the continent. It's for the first time. It's like maybe I can be a pro. You know, maybe this yeah, dream's yeah. real. In the UK, and also for guys, yeah. Sorry, for guys like Callum and Dean who were doing the work, and it's a, it's slightly what you're alluding to there. It's the first time you almost feel pro, yeah, because you're doing what you have watched professionals yeah. do on TV, i.e., ride on the front where you don't do that in Britain, really. No, and I guess or actually you don't, do, f- you don't do it as yeah. a junior. And a funny one with it is Ned that often you're doing what you've seen on TV. You're basically, what, yeah, thinking, yeah, you're yeah, kind of, yeah. you're sort of doing what you've, you haven't learned it from the British racing scene. You haven't done it before. You're mm-hmm. doing, you're like, oh, I'm yeah. doing what they do on TV. This is what they do. I, I know what to do yeah. because this is what they do on TV. And so, yeah, so, I mean, I think that's, that's really interesting when you're that because all of a sudden, and you do raise your level because you get all that sort of excitement and pride and kind of the rushes of endorphins and adrenaline of like, wow, and you're on TV often, you know, like, and you're thinking, this mm. is the real deal. There's helicopters, there's all sorts, and this is a proper bike race. And it's kind of, that's what I mean about the giant leap. All of a sudden, I'm on TV, I'm in TV, I'm one of the protagonists. And uh, that's the kind of beginning of it, really. It's like one of our it, riders last year in the Tour Britain, when we asked him to work, or we said, if we want 
you're going to work if we needed to work on the front and he he said what do I how do I ride on the front or what what do I do we were like well go up to whatever team's currently riding on the front say we we're going to ride get behind him and then just go through at the same yeah. speed as him <laughs> but it's like it's just uh, it's true because it says once it's, you've been like a pro like you were on team sky and in that role you just take it for granted that you you know what to do when you go to the front you know yeah. what pace to ride at you know everything to do but the first time you do it, like how long do i t- what are my turns what's the etiquette where who do exactly. i let who do i ride with even Who's, speaking yeah. to <laughs> a, a, another rider is yeah. like ooh. <laughs> <laughs> especially especially when you're just the only guy from your team yeah. who's been sent up so there's yeah. no one with you. and yeah. Ned yeah. 18 or 19 yeah. Yeah. as you're so familiar for, with this you have major imposter syndrome oh well that's huge basically yeah at, at, that, at that age yeah <laughs> like, on the road yeah <laughs> I guess to road. counter to counter that then you probably the instinct is just to go far too yeah. hard as well just to yeah. kind of like prove That's that you're it. get carried like, away <laughs> you're worth your place up there or get played badly so by an experienced rider who says no no do a longer turn or pick it up a bit yeah 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but I have to say just a final little thing about that you know that Trinity experience the two days of it I had to see them to see your young riders go through that and also in that particular peloton which is I think I tried to make clear it was so amazing because this, this extraordinary scene exists in Portugal unlike anywhere else in the world where you've got unbelievable these unbelievable scene packed <laughs> with these amazingly well funded continental teams like some of these riders are on like a hundred grand a year you know and they're riding the riding Portuguese Portugal. Conti- races yeah, yeah. so and i've, I've still got to make my deck but um i've got this amazing <laughs> idea for my portuguese team we'll race predominantly in portugal obviously um like as said there's 80 race days a year perfect as uh, and we'll do the welter as well <laughs> uh, so it's going to be called bell staff oh yeah Buck. yeah and it's <laughs> going to be all <laughs> It's going to be all, so all red kit, red shorts, a bit like the Seiko kit, Superbot logo, bang in the middle, bell stuff yeah. written horizontally across the top. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and the phoenix on the back. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that will look uh, I mean, if... If only, if only, if only we knew someone who worked at Bellstaff yeah. where he could get this one over the line. It well, would be really so what useful. I'm thinking is, <laughs> if I go to Bellstaff with Superbock already on board, then it's a done it. deal. <laughs> it's done deal. Just bluff, bluff it. Just say they're on board. Drop like, any like, Apple stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> done deal. But, yeah, yeah, uh, but but it's so good because because that that you know you can imagine if you close your eyes. I know there are no television pictures of this race, um, Alentejo, Alentejo, but um, if you Alentejo, well, it, they always kind oh, of there, isn't it? It's not entirely Alentejo, 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 just kind of yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, if you close your eyes, you can imagine what that peloton looks like. Yeah, right? multiple sponsors, all kind of like crazy kits, you know, and a lot of qu- kind of quite white and blue kits actually with yeah. just like mad stuff all over them. Um, but uh, but your team being differently branded and it's got an amazing look to it and particularly this year your designers behind the scenes have kind of upped the ante so your kit for 2023 is like amazing and and just everything about you and then the way you raced on stage one so it wasn't like you were like this little young under 23 team that from Britain who everyone was just elbowing off the road and all that you almost are victims of your own success because when you on day two when you tried to get other teams to work with you they just went well, no, you, but you're really good. Mm. And not only are you really good, you, you kind of look the part as well. So you look pro. No, over to you, really. Yeah, yeah, you look pro. You look proper pro. Being cr- 
Stop being so pro. Oh, so pro. So funny with Ned and the passionate seat getting to like Wikipedia, these other directors to check out who they are. <laughs> oh, that was good fun. Who is he? Who is he? Find out who he is. And some <laughs> of them were so obscure. Done, What's he done, Ned? They'd left no digital trace of their career whatsoever. You know, really? like ungoogleable. Oh. But I love the uh, the Burgos director. Did you have any more contact with him? Because he had the most comedy Spanish accent, didn't he? <laughs> oh, it was great, wasn't it? No, not really. Azevedo passed me a sandwich through the car window. Oh, uh, the whole oh yeah. For lunch. Well, three oh, typical, that, yeah. typical sandwiches, yeah. That I don't know if it was a practical joke because they stunk. And I'm a vegetarian and it was me. And they stunk the car out. So oh, I was like, then the whole trip. stage, I was like, how do, if he asked me, like, how was the sandwich? Do I lie and say it was amazing? Or do I say, actually, I, like, I'm a vegetarian, yeah. couldn't eat it, but the mechanics. And you the should mechanic have said, to like it. double bluff him, said, actually, I, we broke it. It was so good, broke it up and gave it to the riders. Because <laughs> <laughs> then be like, no, 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 you didn't, no, you didn't. <laughs> that is that is a great question. How do you deal with the disgusting sandwich that Azevedo mm. gave you? Because my genuine human impression was that Azevedo had nothing but respect for Peter Kenock. Yeah. Because like they, he saw he saw an equal, a younger version of himself there, you know, and and he knew deep down Azevedo. Don't forget, he used to, you know, he used to work at Catusha as a DS. He knows, even though he's extolling the virtues of the P- Portuguese continental scene, he knows he's better than that. Mm. Yeah, deep down, deep right? down, he do- he know- mm. deep down, Portugal, and that's why he but- identified you as like a kindred spirit on that race. So that sandwich was a totem of his respect yes. that was handed. Like it was literally, this is the sandwich of respect. Yeah. It may have some very unpleasant smelling meat in it, but what are you going to deal with it? You know, how are you going to deal with it? So I think it it would have been very risky for you to go, I'm a, ve- I'm a vegetarian. I, it's Justin. almost a no-go. Yeah. But then he might, have have respected, he might have respected my honesty and the fact that I actually stood up That's to him. That's a very good point. That and is a really good point. He might have just looked at the car and just gone, see, yeah. You know, like shrugged <laughs> and shrugged point, of, course, from, of course he is. Yeah. Another point from that race actually is the rules around like what, the commissaires and how they run the race because there's a couple of directors who were just able to go up the side of the peloton huh. <laughs> like so i i asked glass drive to work autoglass to work with us on the third day and he said yeah no worries how many riders and i said yeah one's enough bloody hell um <laughs> so he's like no problem no problem and then he did the whole cowboy thing where he's like yeah no problem no problem his guy took about 40k to even get on the front and then did about 15k on the front but you see with he said to me yeah that's fine and he did ride but actually didn't really help that much but now he's got me in his pocket hasn't he yeah 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 he has a bit but i've learned from that because then i can just do the same next time someone asks asks me to ride or i'll ride a sword so yeah go and show that you'll help but don't really help but but Pete, uh, the thing that I couldn't really, the story I didn't really have the material to tell in the podcast, because for some reason I never got you to talk about it on tape, but it might be worth just like remembering here because it was so funny, was your, your director's meeting before the race got underway? Oh, yeah. Oh, the chaperone. <laughs> yeah, the oh, chaperone. David, David, you'll okay. love this. This is just, because right. so, I was going to go to the DS's meeting. That was the original plan. I was on a train from Lisbon. And then Pete suddenly got sort of like, he suddenly thought, actually, Ned's just going to sit there and get really bored. So that you messaged me saying, do you know what? Nothing ever happens at these meetings. It's just totally pointless. Don't worry about it. So I said, all right, I'll go and do something else. And then you messaged me saying, mate, it's all kicking off. 
fully <laughs> kicking off. So I don't want to say too much because, you know, I have, I'm going to go back to Portugal in a few months' time for the Volta of Portugal. So I don't want to be on the wrong side of the other directors. However, just be factual. <laughs> just be factual. <laughs> so they say the, the rules around the race and then the anti-doping procedure. And it, in this race, which what I got the gist of doesn't usually happen in Portugal, there's going to be a chaperone, which is completely normal. Anti-doping chaperone. Anti-doping anti -do yeah. chaperone, yeah. Mm. And it, it was just uproar. The, <laughs> honestly, there was a debate for about 40 minutes. And I, don't, I know they are quite animated anyway, aren't they? The Portuguese. Very. But very. it was going off for about 40 minutes about the fact that there's going to be a chaperone to tell the riders they've got dope control and stay with them. And it ended and... He said, do you understand? He said, and then he, tried, he translated it into English. And, I, and then I turned around and said to the directors, I said, so let me get this straight. There's going to be dope control. And he said, yes. And I said, there's going to be a chaperone. And he said, yes. And I was like, what's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> like, surely that's better because then you don't need to find out if you've got dope control. Yeah. Get your, like you have a chaperone. They take you to dope control. Mm. Simple, but not the case. Very interesting. Uh, Very interesting. Yeah. 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 Mm. All right. Now. Well, listen, uh, that wasn't the only bike race going on. We've got the Cape es yeah. Epic to discuss. We've mm -hmm. got like, the small matter of the Tour of Flanders as well and a bunch of other things. So let's just pause here because uh, here's a message from <laughs> David Miller. I never strays far. We've partnered with Athletic Greens. And I can safely say that their nutritional drink, AG1, hasn't strayed far from me since I started taking it every morning a few months ago. I take it literally every day. I've been on a health and fitness kick since the beginning of the year, mainly due to the fact I had the challenge of going from less than zero to something better ahead of my Cape Epic mountain bike challenge. It has become the foundation to my daily routine. I take it first thing in the morning. It's super simple. One scoop that easily dissolves in water and supplies all the key daily nutrients and long-term gut health support that I need. This became more the more important when I fell sick on stage one of Cape Epic and couldn't eat anything. My mind was put at ease knowing my body was still getting its essential needs amongst all the energy drinks and gels I was surviving on. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com forward slash never strays far. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash never strays far. Check it out. Back to the show. What should we deal with next? What wow. should we deal with next in our long list of things to deal with? I mean, I think we should... Uh, we should put the Cape Epic to bed. We can put the Cape Epic or do well, Flanders and then do Cape Epic because Flanders just... Let's do let's Flanders. Do Flanders. Because it was just Flanders. unbelievable. We were all watching it and on our WhatsApp group yeah. messaging and it was just... We kind of eventually just all went quiet after the yeah. final attack from Pog. It was just... Well, like, it was... As, we, as I think we've discussed in the past and we'll come back to talk about the actual race, but it was actually a commentator's nightmare, wasn't it? Like the yes. last... The last 10k, oh, the last right, 12k, it was like done. It was my mountain stage. It was, yeah. and Carlton, Carlton and Sean were like, uh, you know, I really felt for them because it was he's like... He's closing in, he's many, closing in, he's not closing well, in. 
And then how many ways can we say what Pogacar is doing here yeah. is really abnormal? And, and you know, it, it, grand, yeah. grand tour winners have not. By the way, did you see the average speed? You, I saw the, the first race. hour that saw of the whole race of the of the whole race no. 48 48 for the whole race what? your eyes Dave if I could if there's a 48 for the whole race oh my word, my word. the cl- this this I think I've got the right the, the next closest was a couple of years ago and it was something like 42 or 43 low 40s. no Wow! Well, uh, no, that you, the way you've reacted makes me even doubt that so I thought 48 was I, the first I, I 100 k's no, the first two hours were 50k an hour. Oh, well, maybe, yeah, because that means 46 for the rest. Well, no, 40, 47, because it was... I mean, he wa- when he went, he wasn't hanging around. Yeah. Oh. Uh, even uh, worst nightmare <coughs> in the last what, 20 minutes, but even the first, honestly, it was like watching a points race at times with the amount of groups on the road. Oh, yeah, you watched the whole thing, didn't you, Pete? Yeah, honestly, the whole thing. <laughs> Had it on from 20 to 9 or something. Wow. <laughs> It was like, I was so invested by the end. (laughs) (laughs) You've been to war with them. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't, honestly, didn't leave, didn't leave the couch. That's amazing. I said, you know, um, with, I don't know, like most families, it's like, right, dad's watching the football or he's going to the pub to watch the football and that's fine because it's the football and it's just, in in, in England it is, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, dad's watching the football. I was like, Lauren, there's only a few occasions in the year where I will be allowed to sit in front of this TV from nine till half three or four o'clock, and it's Flanders, Roubaix, and the World Championships. And that's yeah. what I did. Yeah, guys, I've just sent to the WhatsApp group the graph. Have a look. Open it up. Uh, <laughs> it's off the scale. So just, I'll, I'll read it out. Like first place, average speed of the race. What? 2023, 48.67 kilometers per hour. Um, this, the, the, this doesn't make great reading, to be honest, but the next fastest was 2001. Oh, and it was forty, word. And it was 43.57. And then, and then you go back to 1971, interestingly, for the third fastest, which is, that's quite interesting. Like, and, but Flanders is a no, multi... And, and Ned, I'm, gonna, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to correct you. It was 44 average at the finish line. That was the first 100Ks. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. That oh, was so his average they're, they're, so far. That was the stats you're looking at average so far after 100Ks. Average so far. So it's oh, 40, right. well, 44 kilometers yeah. now. So it's still the fastest. Yeah. But it's... Um, but not by that no, much because so, that was just ridiculous. Yeah. And that was with the wind and the fact that they raced for 100K. Yeah. 17 yeah. all right scrap that scrap yeah. that fine but yep. still and I, there's I, no ambrosio wheels with like 48 spokes or it's spinachi bars you know <laughs> <laughs> but what what i th- thought was, has been interesting that's 10th the 10th win for pogacha this season and it's oh my word what's and i was thinking about this a bit today about pogacha is are we seeing cause he's only the third rider in history to win tour of flanders and the tour de france in their career and the last person to do it was Eddie Merckx. Um, but what's really interesting is, are we seeing a Tour de France rider on form at his Tour de France winning form all the time? Because most Tour de France riders don't do that. And he's also got all these skills and these different abilities. But we often say if you were to have Miguel Indurain at his Tour de France form in the classics, you know, he'd be amazing if he wanted to go and do them. But there's almost this cultural shift. And Pogacar's ability is not just his... his 
his longevity of peaking. And Pete, you, you're a coach, you understand the science a bit. What is nuts about Pogatra is that he seems to run, at, he seems to hold that peak for so long. Because I think, and that's, because and I was thinking about Matteo van der Poel's kind of, he was, and he was saying, I saw, I read a quote on him today, he didn't go under 400 watts from the Quermont to the finish, like average. So, and he was kind of just, and he was losing time on Pogacar. But if you kind of, Pogacar is one of the greatest Grand Tour winners ever. And when in this generation as well, that means they're absolute freaks. And, you know, and if you put Mathieu van der Poel in the Tour de France uh, against Pogacar, when Pogacar's at top form, this, it's night and day on any stage because Pogacar can, even though Mathieu van der Poel's not at his classics form, it's still night and day. And it's almost as if we're seeing Pogacar at Tour de France winning form at every race. And it's and when you've got a rider, a, a Tour de France genetic freak who's also got this psychology and also this skill set, we're seeing what a Tour de France physique kind of f- like specimen can do in these different races, which we haven't mm. seen since likes of Merckx because he did the mm. same. Mm. He would carry that Tour de France form to all these different races. And it's kind of he's... And Remco Evenepoel's a bit the same. And... So it's kind of interesting to see this new style of racing and rider proving that it's possible to hold that kind of, uh, the, uh, I'd say, ex, ex, I'd not say exploit, exploit their abilities to their, ma- to their maximum. Could it be, physio- if, there's, if you're sort of scrabbling around for a, a vague physiological, you know, um, uh, understanding of why that might be the case, could it have something to do with his extreme youth? No. I guess my, que- my question would be is, is he risking being at his absolute best for the Tour de France to be 98% across the whole year? And I would probably say yes. Mm. Well, it, that, well, that's going to be the fascination of this racing year, isn't it? Like, yeah. we, we can only see what we can see, but it's not like he's, I don't think in his own mind, in his own plan, he's not like chalked off the Tour de France. I think the Tour de France, is all, he just thinks no, he can no. do it all. Oh, yeah. And and what's interesting about him as well, because if you also, and there's the kind of the double-edged sword to that youth thing, he's getting older and better, you know, it's kind of, and what's interesting about him, he, he goes, he's not scared, he's like a young rider who wants to go and try new things and learns. You saw him last year go to the, the, uh, the, the Cobble Classics and kind of try them out and was pretty good, but he made clear mistakes. He's then come back this year, not only a bit physically stronger, knowing what he needs to kind of have in his kind of his arsenal, but also more wily. It's almost as if he was using the classics he's done before now. I mean, obviously he was all in San Remo, but that's but now he understands the only way he's ever going to win the San Remo is by winning it solo. So he's now understood that, and he's not going to drop them on the Poggio. So he's going to have he's to have, have to, yeah. he's going to have to rip it to pieces on the Chapressa, and he's going to have to make the you know. So you see what I mean? So he's learning kind of as he goes oh. along he'll have to go the capo Berta. yeah no no exactly they'd have to kind of they'd have to like destroy the race in the Tokino they would though if they get the team's getting stronger and stronger just put the hammer down yeah. and tire riders out you know yeah so I, I yeah and I think that's that's what's exciting about you're, watching you're, one of the pods we did when that you weren't mm. involved in David because you were in Cape Town we, we discussed exactly that yeah. briefly you know mm. how does how does um, Tade Pogacar complete the set mm. and the most difficult one for him to win yeah. is pro- is probably Milan San Remo he hasn't raced um Paris Roubaix yet so mm. and he's not going to do it this year so we, uh, that's a huge unknown 
But Milan Sanremo, we've seen now, we've seen how he pulls up short. And I, that's why next year's Milan Sanremo, I'm already looking forward to it because he, he's going to have to try something hugely expansive. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not going to happen for him. And it's just, <laughs> he's such an interesting bike rider. And we all, I think, celebrated his victory, didn't we? It's not yeah. like, I know there is a school of thought saying it's just become predictable and boring, but... That's not that's not predictable or boring no. what he's doing. No. That's <laughs> it's we're in the, he's we just are so in the likeable era. as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think even if he'd yeah. lost it, you know, he's he's got he's magnanimous in defeat, isn't he? He's just so kind of he just rolls with it. And it's because he's mm. it, normally if he loses, it's either because he got it wrong tactically or it was in a sprint against a rider he can't beat. And he's just Guys, like, okay. Yeah. No disrespect to um Adam Blythe, but He's literally replying to his tweet the morning of Flanders. To Tade Pogaccia's tweet? No, no, to the Tade Pogaccia's replying to Blythe's tweet. That's not disrespecting Adam Blythe. That's hats off to Adam Blythe, I think. No, I mean it? the fact that he's <laughs> replying to Blythe's tweet. Yeah. Like, yeah. Do you know what I mean? He's yeah. not bothered by stuff, is he? He's he's just not, that's not, what I mean. He's so relaxed. He's yeah. just like, yeah. oh, yeah. Whatever. Imagine yeah. just taking the time to do that like just before yeah. you go and win Flanders. Yeah. So that was that was the so, that was the social media equivalent of the moment in the bike race that I thought was really interesting. Where um, I think clearly, with the benefit of hindsight, it was possibly because Wat van Aert was injured and wasn't didn't have the legs, you know, because he'd taken that knock and just wasn't feeling it. That Christophe Laporte bridged across oh, yeah. that that fifteen second gap like that. Mm-hmm. By the way, he went really quick. He was and all of a sudden, Pogaccio was like, "Huh." Okay. What are you doing here? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. do we? And it, but he just he just wasn't remotely bothered by Laporte's presence with him, was it? He just used it to mm. like got a little bit of advantage out of Laporte, mm. and then just kind of dispensed with him when he had to. It was effort, it, it made it he made it look effortless. It was extraordinary. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and quick step. They're just having the having a great time, are they? I know they're totally all eggs in the Remco basket now totally yeah, flipped yeah. it's kind of gone from the ultimate classics team to yeah, all eggs in the grand tour team yeah Patrick Lefebvre well, hating well that. a lot of, a lot yeah. of that is just the, the serial sort of lack of success of Julian Alaphilippe isn't it so uh, yeah he was you know, nowhere just, actually was he what well he got caught up in that ridiculous oh, yeah, crash that was a ridiculous crash yeah um, oh that crash um, yeah the one you sent us the, f- oh, yeah. the f- Polish rider from Bahrain Victorious, wasn't it? Philip um, oh, Machi. Do you know Machi- what? Like, yeah. Honestly, I get all the tweets and I get the uproar, but come on. How many people have rode down a cycle path and done the exact same thing and there just wasn't a massive puddle there? Mm. You know, come on. It's Yeah, you shouldn't ride down a cycle path. I agree, but probably 90% of that peloton have. And this one on this one occasion, he was just so, so unlucky. That's it, his yeah. career. And it's just it, all this uproar, you know. And it's... <laughs> there, there was, Come there on, wasn't Pete. A... Cycling Twitter loves a bit of moral uproar, you know, That's moral true. panic about stuff. Yeah, but yeah. it's... It's, yeah. it's crazy, isn't it? Mm. Well, yeah, like yeah. the guys winning the race have done exactly the same thing, but just haven't happened to <laughs> cycle... Take out half the peloton. <laughs> ten foot deep puddle and then veer into the front of the peloton. <laughs> 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 God. Poor guy. Yeah. Uh, it kind of it kind of makes sense of I the was UCI's. epic though, wasn't it? He just <laughs> seen him look behind. He was like, "Oh no!" <laughs> it was like, "Oh god!" <laughs> oh, now god. what? What have I done? <laughs> he should have just parked it right there and then walk back and just started apologising. Oh, if only I had braked. 
Uh, it, but what what was your what was your experience of racing Flanders? You two? I didn't do it. You didn't do it ever. No, I was always on sabbaticals at that time of year. Right. Mm. I did it. I loved it. I, I mean, David I, doing it. I was. Um, I did it a couple of times at the beginning of my career, and then just couldn't. I didn't like the length of the classics. I just wasn't fit enough, and just couldn't get my head around it. And <laughs> <laughs> to be perfectly honest, uh, and then wasn't fit enough. And then when I got older, I was like, I'll give them a go. And 2010, I was off the front in Flanders by accident um, in the final oh, 30 k's. Yeah, because yeah, it was just chaos. Because you didn't know which group. Didn't you had were no in, idea what group yeah. I was in. Then got to like the yeah. second feed or a third feed, or whatever. And I asked Fletcher, I was like, Are we at the front? And he's like, Yeah. And I said, Cool. And I attacked. <laughs> <laughs> and I went off the front and you had Cancellara and Bonin who were already gone and so I was then chasing them and then Philippe Joubert bridged up to me on the next climb and then me and Philippe Joubert were off the front chasing it was me and Philippe Joubert chasing Bonin and Cancellara and I was oh, what? No, I was, at the Tour of Flanders yeah and I was then coming into the fight on the Gramont because that was the old finish and uh, I, coming into it I was like my lights went out I bonked completely and because I hadn't been fueling properly, I'd missed, we were, I'd missed, we hadn't had people out there giving us bottles with, so I hadn't drunk or anything. I was just, it was just chaos. And I then, because I had the vehicles there and I got gels and then I started to come to and I was on my own then in fifth place, like riding in with three Ks to go. And a no group, way. And a group caught me and Tyler was in there. So I led Tyler out and he got fourth. And I remember then crossing the finish line and just sitting there. There's a picture of me and Tyler sitting down on the curb. And I was just so bamboozled. I was like, what the hell just happened? And uh, it's funny because I was reading Nielsen Paulus, who got fifth yesterday, his kind of post-race kind of interview. And it brought back so memory, so many memories because it's one of those only races where you finish it and you've kind of just like, what the hell just happened? Kind of because you're so disorientated. The race is all over the place. And he had exactly the same situation because in one of the crashes, he lost his computer. So he didn't know where he was or what was happening. And and it, it felt even, and I was 33 at the time, it felt like I was a junior again racing Flanders because it, it just, it was so much chaos. There's like people crashing into fields, you're going left, right, you're doing loops, you're kind of, the weather's all over the place. You don't know what group you're in. No one knows what they're doing. And it's kind of, so on, on TV, it looks kind of like everybody knows where they're at and what they're doing. And the front guys probably do, but everyone else is just like, what group am I in? It's like, where's the front? Kind of, and where are we? Yeah. And then you've got all the, yeah. the Flemish guys who know every single meter of the road and memorize all the yeah, names. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I'm just yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're like, oh, we're coming up to such and such burger. And I'm just like, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> kind of like, literally no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, so. I, lo I love all that. <laughs> David, the the, um, the latest edition of Rouleur, and I, I write the um, leader column in, in Rouleur. Obviously, it was a Belgian classics, as a Cobble Classics column. And I, and I wrote a whole piece, a whole kind of like thought piece about why are the Belgian classics so different? And why do they have this, like one of the, you know, one of the absolute features of the Tour of Flanders and all the one day classics is the complete like, obsessional switches of direction yeah. all the time. So like the one thing you don't do is go a very great distance from the start to the finish. It just, they just take you the long yeah. way around. Like it just does that. And that is unique to Belgian racing. Mm. If you consider as a counterpoint, Milan, San Remo, that's mm. 300 kilometers because it's 300 kilometers yeah. to get from Milan, San Remo, Paris Tour, Harry Brest, you know, France and Italy have a completely different, yeah. the, the three great cycling countries, Belgium, France and Italy. Even Liège, Baston, uh, Liège. 
Exactly. Mm. Out and back. Yeah. Make it, you know, fiddly. And I think one of the reasons why that's grown up to be the tradition is because Belgium is inherently very small. Mm. If you go 300 meters in the wrong direction, you end up in Germany yeah. <laughs> like very quickly, you know? So by, by definition, it's had to restrict itself to these small sort of geographical, but then there's also something slightly self-referential and narcissistic about it and something that favors the home riders in a way that no other races like, you know, don't tell me that Alpe d'Huez favors the French riders. Mm. It's the most international mountain in the world. But all those little bergs and everything, they're made for Eve Lamparts. They really are. And it's just um, that, that character is just uh, fundamental to how yeah. we appreciate. Martin. And, and I really think enjoy. also because it, it is such a bike race as bike race Flanders, you know, Paris-Roubaix is like the queen of the classics, they say. But I, I think that for most riders who've done Flanders, consider it to be the ultimate one day race because it is it's the ultimate classic. You have to have such a skill set to kind of do it. Yeah. And I think for Pogaccia, that's why it's so important because even all the classics riders, the one classic they truly want to win to kind of prove Flanders. is Flanders. It's not yeah, Roubaix. Flanders. Roubaix is kind of, it's, yeah. it's a beautiful race, but it's kind of, it's not, doesn't require the same kind of savviness, the same skills, the same all round ability. Flanders is the world championship of kind of one day races. So for, for yeah. Pogacar to do that, it's kind of like he stamped his authority on the whole peloton. It's like, I can win the Tour de France and I can win Flanders. You know, that's, the atmosphere is just so addictive as well, isn't it? Mm. Around the whole race. I remember being there as a junior and um, we did the Padestrot flat section of cobbles around K and a half. I don't know, it must have been 40 minutes before the race came through. Then we pulled over Bettina, who was, in the world champ- he was a world champion at the time. And I just remember being, oh my God, this is so cool. Mm. And even now, since that day, I've just been so addicted to the race. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. You watched the whole bloody yeah, thing. Yeah, clearly, yeah. <laughs> watched the whole lot. Chapeau. I mean, what, a, what a shift you put in. Um, worth saying as well uh, uh, that Lotte Kopecky's victory in the, in the women's Tour of Flanders that finished, you know, just a short time after the men's race in front of exactly the same crowd on exactly the same finish line um, was not only an amazing physical and tactical performance by the kind of all-conquering SD Works team who are just terrifying women's, the women's peloton at the moment because when one of them goes that's it mm. like it's game over and her teammate Demi Follering won the sprint for second um but Lottie Kopecky the former Belgian champion her you know personal story of what happened to her in March is off the scale you know her her brother Sepp died very suddenly and very young and days later she was winning Dwarf Door Flandern Jeez. Uh, at least I think it was that race or one of the other ones. Um, and, then, and then she follows it up with a kind of amazing solo win at wow. the Tour of Flanders. And just as a little footnote to the emotional resonance of that story in the country we've just been talking about, Belgium, um, I noticed that the, the Flanders Classics organisation, the equivalent of ASO, if you like, that, that do these very innovative things. And I think they're right at the forefront of kind of advancing bike racing. Um, they took the very interesting and at the times quite at the time quite controversial decision to run the women's race immediately after the men's race rather than before it mm. so the women would finish after um and at the time everyone went well that's just stupid isn't it and they've been proven 100 percent correct and their tv ratings have gone from something like 170,000 in belgium to yesterday's victory admittedly it was a belgian rider who won it but that went over a million wow. people in Belgium watching the women's race finish. Huh. So that's how you do it. Yeah. 
that's how you do it. You make it free to air. You put it. You 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 kind of schedule it, in a, and that's the way you look after the future of your sports. Mm. You know, um, chapeau to them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's very cool. incredible. Yeah. So so yeah, shame he's not going to do Paris Roubaix. We got quite excited about that, didn't we? Briefly, David, mm. and then I checked, and he's, it's not on his. Well, he might surprise us, I suppose. Pogacar might. But if it rains, he might go. <laughs> <laughs> just for the just for the fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, so how about the Cape Epic, David? What, what can you tell us? Uh, tell us? Obviously, obviously, it was very, very hard. And um, also, you were, for the first couple of days, very, very ill or rubbish. You were a bit rubbish. Well, I got into it not knowing much about it, and which was a, a grave error in hindsight. Um, I'm not saying I was complacent, but I think because Francis was under so much stress about it because she hadn't even owned a mountain bike before January and this had been her bonkers idea. I was sort of overcompensating that it would be fine with her. Um, and as soon as I got there, I realized it wasn't going to be fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> especially when I started reading up on it, like after the prologue and reading reports and then discovering it was the only all category mountain bike race in the world that it was considered one of the toughest mountain bike, the toughest mountain bike stage race. And I was like, oh, Dear. and mm. then realizing it was majority single track as well yeah um so and but then i got sick on the first you're, stage you're a prologue specialist david that were you competitive yeah. in the were you a competitive we did that was pushed yeah. france hard she was at threshold the whole time okay for like two two and a half hours were you, um, were you bullying her did you bully her a bit or not uh, a little bit i did see i didn't realize uh, on the first day that um i realized that evening because we were staying we camped next to Mitch Docker and Ian Boswell, okay. who were there doing it um, for their podcasts, uh, Digger and the Doughboy, as they called themselves. And they were leading the amateur category. Um, but Ian Boswell, who knows my sister, was totally terrified for her, much more than me. <laughs> and, and he came up to us in the first day and was like, oh, my God, Fran, you've got to be so careful in that first descent. And I was like, oh, Ian, don't do this. And <laughs> but then in that evening we were talking and going through it, and I learned that the mixed category and actually within the whole event, pushing is totally allowed. Even at the, with the pros, you push each other. Oh. And so I went into with great ambitions in the first day, stage one, to kind of give France boosts. That's completely accepted. I boosted her in the first nine Ks, and then the wheels fell off, and I was following her for like the next four hours with her waiting for me saying come on buddy and I was having an absolute day of shame and I got back to the camping car and just climbed into bed and didn't get out till the next morning and had gastroenteritis so it was like <laughs> so at which point I was like this is not gonna be fun and uh but it, it was pretty amazing. I mean, you have 1,400 riders there that starts, 700 teams. And the whole compound is bigger than the Tour de France compound. I mean, it's a logistical masterpiece. And the majority of people stay on site. There's like one-man tents. There's campers. There are some people that stay off-site. But for most people there, it's kind of, they're all going there just to finish. There's only a few racing it, like a handful of people. And, it, it for, and a lot of people there haven't, have been there before and haven't finished which was giving us the fear as well. I mean, people who looked experienced. And Frances came into it and Pete was training her over the whole winter and she was doing kind of super structured training. And it was amazing to watch her because it, she was doing what, it, what we learned as we were going on to complete it was for many mountain bikers, like a bucket list. And Franz hadn't didn't even own a mountain bike till January, yeah. and so it was <laughs> Pete shaking his head. <laughs> uh, 
But she was like brilliant. I mean, every day she was just kind of going beyond her limits, which was really interesting to see because it was a, a pretty amazing experience being and often with when you're with somebody that's kind of doing something for the first time when you're a pro, you can get a little bit at times impatient. But there was none of that because I was just kind of in so in awe of what she was doing. And it was kind of, and it was such an experience because you're surrounded no matter where you are in that field of 700 teams, the people around you are going through the same, exactly the same experience. Whether it's the sharp end with the pros, they're all batting each other, the people at the back are battling themselves and kind of comparing themselves to the other people. But it was, and you had, you had Mitch there, you had Ian there, you had the shark, which was really weird because we were all the shark to, of Messina, the, the shark of Messina, because in the past I've always just called him Nibbles or Nibali. He was working yeah. or riding. Vincenzo. Was he a bit, he never, what's that? Was he working or riding? No, he was riding. Oh. He was like kind of there, serious. He was in the pros. Was he? Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. he was in a pro team. What? Kind of him and some Italian. Oh, yeah, Pete. Yeah. Just he's, well, you don't doubt that, do you? He's just kind of come oh. straight out running rich, kind of keeping it going. <laughs> and, uh, but we were all just, it just came so naturally to call him the shark. Did you have any banter that, with him, David? I didn't even see him once. <laughs> like, not once. Like, like, seriously. It was amazing. He must have been staying off site, kind of. Yeah. A lot of the pros were staying kind of off site. Yeah. But we never saw the pros because they'd start at dawn. So the pros go first, so they got the clear trails, then the amateur, then the pro women go, then the amateurs go, and then you're put in waves, depending on your prologue time and your GC time. So we were always off in the kind of the last third, and kind of, so we're always around the sort of similar standard of people. But we'd be out there for eight hours a day. I mean, wow. we did, the, the biggest, it's the biggest week of my life in the saddle, 52 yeah. hours. Easily. I mean, yeah. I mean, and it was, it was really hard on, I'd say... Apart from the day where I was sick, which was just a classic sort of day where it's horrible, the Friday and Saturday were probably two of the most extreme days I've ever had on a bike. What? It was, I mean, legit kind of top five. And no way. Especially, yeah, the Bear Saturday. Bear in mind, only on this podcast, you've just been talking about um, potentially getting yeah, in the top yeah. five Being in the top with Gilbert with Gilbert. trying to bridge across the bone of <laughs> <Yeah. the> G- <laughs> <Cachalara>. <laughs> yeah. no, 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 that was easy compared to this. On the Saturday, it was they extended for the first, they extended the the um, the elimination, and we still only made it in by 15 minutes. But a lot of Ooh. people were eliminated. And what, when you cross the line, you're eliminated. On the finish line, they cut off your, your number board. Wow. Yeah. Savage. Oh. And, and that. I know it's dark and but that day there'd been it was so mud it was almost impossible well you couldn't ride I think for kilometers we walked in trails that you were just unrideable and bikes breaking down and people sitting at the side of the trails just heads in their hands and it was it was kind of like a Dantesque kind of purgatory scene and uh but the whole thing was just it was an amazing experience and it was so different to the road culture as well and the gravel culture it's got a real the mountain biking vibe has such a different camaraderie and it's it was really interesting hey david uh, congratulations on finishing it and congratulations to fran as well and hopefully i might be able to hook up with fran and get her sort mm. of side of that story um but just very briefly vincenzo nibali well actually you didn't bump into vincenzo nibali uh, no, the uh, shark. but the shark sorry um but um you have today bumped into a former another former Tour de France champion yeah right? well this was fully bonkers because 
I've come out of Cape Epic and just loving riding my bike and I've been out kind of every day and then I was in Girona and, and I thought I'm just going to go out for a one hour lunch ride and bang up the climb to Los Angeles behind Girona. And I had my earphones in and I was about 20, like 10 minutes up the climb and I saw a rider coming out of the gravel and just literally joining onto the road at the same time as me. And I looked across and I was like, Cadell. And he was huh. like, David. And it was just the most surreal experience. So it was just me and Cadell just bumped into each other and then spent the next half or 20 minutes like riding, chatting, catching up on life. And I just thought, wow, that is just... And it's so rare that I go out on my own and do that and are fit enough to kind of actually even be able to ride with Cadell because he's still super fit. Yeah. But it was just nice. And we just had a lovely chat. And I thought, and even you're kind of, even though I know Cadell well, it's like I'm riding with Cadell Evans just on a lunchtime ride by accident. And, <laughs> you know, you're kind of like, this is weird. And it's, yeah. So it was, it's nice. And I felt that was a bit kind of, a bit of synchronicity and serendipity because, you know, I really enjoyed it. And it was, I, I think we were, we were talking about this before we started, Pete, and we were talking, mentioning about the fact that we'll never be racers again. But it was nice just bumping into him as I'm kind of in this sort of pink cloud rose kind of tinted glasses of cycling at the moment and loving it again and bumping into an old pro and having a really nice time riding up in a spring day and Drona up a climb out the back of Los Angeles. And uh, yeah, I kind of really enjoyed it. And that was kind of, I think, thanks to Cape Epic. Yeah, it's given me some fitness and form, and made me appreciate it again, because there are some, and that was the other thing about Cape Epic, because and you stop racing because it gets too hard and you haven't got the mindset, and you're you just find it really you don't want to suffer anymore, and then you come out of it and you lose your fitness and you don't want to ride your bikes, you don't feel good anymore, mm-hmm. and so it becomes this sort of vicious circle, and because of doing the Cape Epic and and going to those depths and mainly because my sister, because I wouldn't have done it, wouldn't have gone there in the first place. So I wouldn't want to do something that hard. Kind of, we went through those days and you come out of it and you appreciate days like today all the more, you know, it's a spring day. want to go out, ride my mm. bike. And I haven't gone to those extremes in so long on a bike that I kind of appreciate it anew. It's taken nine years to go. Actually, sometimes I'm going to have to go really deep to mm. kind of remember what mm. it's like just to go out on a quiet ride and, because I've been going out on quiet rides and not really felt anything because I've yeah. had no contrast. Yeah. And I've just had this huge contrast at Cape Epic and looking forward to getting back here and just being able to ride my bike and not be in mud and not <laughs> be sleeping in a camper and not being sick. And mm. it's uh, it's good. I've kind of rediscovered a renaissance of my love of cycling. Mm. Not being not being soundly thrashed by the shark every single day. Yeah, God, I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lizzie Deignan had a very interesting theory about you, Pete, when I spoke to her, because she's writing. So one of the things I did when I can't wait saw to hear her niece. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's quite it is quite interesting um, <laughs> that she's writing a piece uh, for the Roadbook about um, her second, you know, un- totally unprecedented second comeback after childbirth to the to professional racing, uh, which she's about to restart again in May at the Vuelta. Um, but she said, she was thinking about it. She said, I, with hindsight, and this is totally unexpected, I have been so blessed by having two maternity leaves in the middle of my career because mm. I was like everyone who has a long racing career. I got jaded. I got stale. I started to hate it. And uh, okay. I, and she said, I, uh, 
well, if Pete had had mater- if Pete had had maternity leave, and you'd been given like a year out, whether mm. you would have um, like had a, a, a you know been able to go a bit longer with your career and come back rebooted and refreshed. I mean, it's you know I thought it's just a very interesting point that she spun that what obviously seems like a very difficult you know thing to overcome into a real positive, and it's kind of totally reengaged her. You know, but there we go. You never know. We'll never know. We'll never know. Yeah. But like David yeah. said, it's a vicious circle, isn't it? And once you get into that mindset, it's so hard to get out of it. Yeah. Unless mm. you have that, you know, break of... Just go to Cape Epic together leaders. next year, Pete. Yes. What's that, Cape Epic next year? Oh. You and, yeah, you'd yeah. have to get a hipster like like Mitch Docker and Ian Boswell doing a podcast on the Cape Epic. You'd have to get a real hipster yeah. partner like to kind of... Well, like Pete Kenya's hipster. Oh, what about Tim Kenyuk? Pete and Tim. Oh, Pete and Tim. Pete, too. Pete and that Tim. would be good. They're another sibling one. That would be awesome. <laughs> I couldn't handle yeah. eight days with Tim. <laughs> That's the point. That's what would make it magic. That's how long it would take us to get round with him trying to stop him to scratch his head every free kick. <laughs> oh, he'd hate it. You'd hate uh, it. All right, guys. Oh, well, well, hopefully I'll, you'll I'll, catch up with France and you can get her point of view on Cape I'll, Epic as well, Ned. I'll, tr- I'll try and do that. And I'm, I'm, next time we speak, I may be in Sicily because I'm going to the I'm going to the the Giro di Sicilia next next week, which is of course, as you as you will know, it's the scene of the last great victory of the Shark of Messina, Vincenzo Nibli, who took stage four and the overall of the 2021 Giro di Sicilia. So I'll see you from Sicily.